7 in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. New York City has picked its Democratic candidate for mayor from a crowded field. The election was a high-profile trial run for ranked-choice voting, which went off almost without a hitch. It was also a sign for Democrats elsewhere not to veer too far left. And life for gay people is notoriously difficult in the Middle East, where homosexuality is often criminalized. But a close look at past scholarship and literature suggests the region once had far more fluid attitudes towards sexuality. First up, though. The president of Haiti was assassinated in his home early Wednesday morning. The country's interim prime minister has declared a state of emergency in the country. He said an armed commando group shot and killed Jovenel Moïse and injured his wife. Last night, police said they had killed four of the people responsible and arrested two others. Foreign leaders have condemned the assassination. Today, the UN Security Council will hold a closed-door meeting about it. Mr. Moïse had plenty of enemies and detractors. For months, protesters had been calling for his resignation. They argued his term was up, that he cozied up to gangs, that he had his hands in the country's till. In recent weeks, gangs have had the upper hand. Protests have turned deadly, and thousands have fled from Haiti's cities. Now that Mr. Moïse is gone, it's likely the violence will only escalate. So yesterday the president was assassinated. There was no coup. The interim prime minister, Claude Joseph, has taken control of the country in an attempt to try and keep the country from falling apart. Sarah Burke is The Economist's bureau chief for Mexico, Central America and the Caribbean. But the problem is Haiti was already in such a terrible state because in part of the president's rule and now with him gone it's not necessarily any more stable it's yet another destabilizing factor and what do we know about who assassinated him well it's very unclear who killed him or why i mean it will have been most likely mercenaries but the big question is who's behind it and that's very unclear rumors are swirling in haiti some claiming it was the united states which is unlikely others claiming it was ordered by internal politicians or internal businessmen or elites who are unhappy with him I mean, this is apparently not the first attempt on Mr. Moyes's life. In February, he claimed there had been a plot to assassinate him and carry out a coup. So the government arrested at least 23 people, including a top judge and a senior police officer. And you mentioned that Haiti was already in bad shape in, in part because of Mr. Moyes's rule. Tell me a bit more about him. When did he come to power? 
So he became president in 2017. He was a political outsider, a former banana plantation manager, and indeed he referred to himself at points as Banana Man. When Mr. Moise was elected, he was only elected with 600,000 votes in a country of 11-odd million people. And there were lots of protests ever since he took power, really, calling for him to go. First of all, protesters were complaining about the cost of living, which obviously wasn't necessarily his fault. It's a very poor country. And then demonstrators became more concerned with corruption. They accused the president of being involved in a scandal in which millions of dollars were pilfered from Petro Caribe, which is a an aid fund that Venezuela gave. He denied that. I mean, they've also been unhappy and said he's become increasingly anti-democratic. He'd been ruling by the Cree since January 2020 after dismissing almost all of the legislature, bar 10 senators. And Haiti has failed to hold legislative elections. And then this year, his opponents started saying that he'd been in power beyond his term. They said he should have left in February, which was five years after the former president left. But he says he had another year until February 2022 because he took office a year after he should have done. And how had he responded to to all that protest? Well, with a heavy hand, he had widened the definition of terrorism to include acts of dissent. So that was a way of going after protesters. But also opponents alleged that he used gangs. I mean, politicians using gangs in Haiti is not new. Politicians do it. Big businessmen do it. And they say he used the gangs to suppress protesters. In one case, there was a massacre in which 71 people were killed in one neighborhood. And they alleged that that was ordered by the government. I mean, obviously, the government denied that. And it's very hard to get to the bottom of these. But there's been a lot of violence against protesters. So, you know, by the end, the president had been looking increasingly anti-democratic and battled and actually incompetent. And he had very little legitimacy due to the sort of concerns about whether he should be in office or shouldn't have been in office. What do you think will happen now in Haitian politics? I mean, that's the million dollar or one of the million dollar questions. At the moment, the interim prime minister, Claude Joseph, is in charge, but he has little legitimacy. There are elections due in September for a new president and new lawmakers. Those also, it was sort of unclear if they were going to go ahead because the situation in the country is very volatile. The opposition is also, to make matters even more complicated, quite splintered and unstable. You've got the sort of traditional parties and you've got the protest movement. And frankly, Haitians have very little trust in anyone and very little faith in elections. And do you think that there's any hope that that change at the top will address what the protesters have been protesting about, corruption, violence, the, the cost of living? It would be nice to have a positive answer to that. I mean, some people say that perhaps the scale of the problem, the crisis now in Haiti, means that civil society, politicians from the opposition, from the government, business elites will all come together to form a political accord. That at the moment is unclear. But, you know, many of Haiti's problems predate Mr. Moise. He's not responsible for for all of them. And indeed, some of the things that got worse under his watch were the cumulative effect of years and years of misgovernance in Haiti. At the moment, it feels like a vacuum, both in terms of political leadership, security apparatus, the economy has two years of negative growth, and it's hard to see how just a change at the top is going to change that. Thanks very much for joining us, Sarah. Thanks, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. 
get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalize and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary. From the rush of the campaign and election night, Qualities in this city. That's the way I want your ballots to look. Thank you all so much. Who city? Who city? I love you. To the waiting. Two weeks after Democrats voted in New York City's primary for mayor, Eric Adams, a Brooklyn borough president and retired police officer, won the party's nomination. I'm the American dream. You know, and we're going to continue to turn this dream into reality so we can stop the nightmare that has engulfed this city and in this this country. New Yorkers have a tendency to think their city is the center of the known world. But this was an election with national ramifications. It sent a strong message to the Democratic Party about what voters truly want. And it could have far-reaching implications for the types of candidates the party supports in the future. This was the first time the city had ranked choice voting election, where you don't just count the votes like in normal elections, but you have to tabulate second and third choices until someone has a majority. And that can take a bit of time. Absentee ballots were added on Tuesday. Those ballots put Eric Adams firmly ahead in the Democratic mayoral primary. Rosemary Ward is The Economist's New York correspondent. And that pretty much guarantees his election as mayor in November because Democrats outnumber Republicans in the city six to one. And who is Eric Adams? How did he come out on top? Well, Eric Adams is a former policeman, a former police captain, actually. And he became well-known in the city for being an internal critic of NYPD's racism and brutality. And after he retired as a cop, he became a state lawmaker and eventually became Brooklyn's borough president. So he's a pretty well-known, high-profile person in New York City. He was a moderate, betrayed himself as a blue-collar candidate during the campaign, and that worked for him. He was the first choice in four of the five boroughs, except for Manhattan, and he was a strong favorite among Black and Latino voters and built a big coalition among pastors, labor groups, Orthodox Jewish groups and had endorsements from many ethnic newspapers in the area. But his big platform was public safety. And it's also essential that we stop this spike and increase in crime. That's why we're. As a cop, he obviously worked in battling crime. He argued for more police, particularly non white officers, and police reform. Uh, I am the voice of Stop and Frisk and reforming, stopping frisk. I'm the, I'm the While his rivals tried to defund the police. 
And, and what does Mr. Adams' evident success tell you about New York's voters? Well, even before the election, New Yorkers listed crime as one of their three biggest concerns, along with COVID-19 and the economy. And with good reason. Last year, police recorded more than 1,500 shootings. That's nearly twice as many as the year before. 886 people have been shot in New York through July 4th of this year. Even Times Square, which is blanketed with police, has seen shootings in recent months in broad daylight. On Tuesday, New York's Governor Cuomo declared a statewide emergency around gun violence. We went from one epidemic to another epidemic. We went from COVID to the epidemic of gun violence. When you look at the recent numbers, more people are dying of gun violence than of COVID. People are dying. So New York City doesn't feel as safe as it used to. So that message resonated. And, and who were the other candidates up against Mr. Adams? What were their platforms? It was a crowded field. Probably the best known was Andrew Yang, who famously ran for president last year, promising universal basic income for everybody. And he started very strong. He topped all the polls, dominated the media's attention. But in recent weeks, he's fizzled out completely and ended up being eliminated on night one of voting. Catherine Garcia came second in the final tally. We have to have an effective police force. We have to have strong communities. We have to support our small businesses. But most she headed the city sanitation department. She was endorsed by multiple labor unions, as well as the New York Times and the Daily News, two leading liberal newspapers in the city. Maya Wiley, who ultimately came in third, but had a strong second in the first round, was probably one of the most progressive of the leading candidates. We will have the courage to say that every worker is an essential worker and we don't give a damn whether you have documents. She's a civil rights lawyer who was Bill de Blasio, the current mayor's attorney in City Hall. And she was endorsed by some big name progressives, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And this election was a big, a high-profile test of the ranked choice voting system. Do you think it's held up? Ranked choice voting was considered a success by the voters themselves. Nearly 80% said they were in favor of using ranked choice voting in future elections. 95% found ballots easy to complete. Most people actually filled in the holes for all five candidates. But what was a disaster was the Board of Elections, which administers the elections. One week after the primary, the board released preliminary results, which turned out to be botched. The board accidentally included 135,000 full votes from a test run, which they just didn't delete before releasing the numbers. And that's nothing new with the Board of Elections. And that's partly because they are political appointed as opposed to professional civil servants administering elections. They undermined not just ranked choice voting, but the electoral process. And as for Mr. Adams, what's going to be in his inbox when he takes over? Well, I think crime is still going to be very much at the forefront. Although crime dipped a little bit this past week, it's still very much something that the police are grappling with. The city is still struggling to recover from the pandemic. There's loads of small businesses still closed. Midtown and downtown are shadows of themselves. Only 12% of Manhattan's office workers are back at their desk. Only 2.3 million people ride the subway every day, which is 58% lower than pre-pandemic levels. 
It's wonderful to see the city opening up again, thanks to restrictions being lifted and the vaccines. But the city still has a long way to go. And the next mayor will have to navigate that and figure out how the city will continue. And what about the bigger picture here? What does this outcome in in terms of the various Democratic platforms that were there tell you about the Democratic Party more broadly? Well, I think it could be an indicator that the Democratic Party isn't moving very far left or towards socialism. I think in New York's case, it showed that people were quite happy to move back towards the center. So the lessons to other Democrats might be do not lean too left. And it's also a reminder to Democratic mayors that you have to be credible on crime because if you don't have a safe city, everything else falls apart. And it's an issue that voters care about and has the power to block all others. Rosemary, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Lovely chatting with you, Jason. In the majority of the Middle East, homosexuality is a criminal offense. In some countries, it's punishable by death. Oppressive Islamic governments appeal to religious tradition, claiming that LGBT identities are an import from the West. But there's a counter-argument, that Islam has a liberal heritage that it should be embracing. We always think about Islam as having an absolutist view when it comes to homosexuality. Nicholas Pelham is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist. In recent years, what you've had are activists working with LGBT groups who've gone back to the original text, gone back to their history, and actually come back with a refreshing and alternative interpretation of Islam's past. And what interpretation is that? Actually, what they discovered is that Arab rulers were much more liberal about sex than their European counterparts until the modern era. And their argument is that homophobia really entered the Muslim world at the behest of British and French colonial powers and that they came in with their Victorian values and undermined relatively permissive Islamic cultures. So what in the past then of these Islamic cultures points to more liberalism? They go back to the classical age of Islam, to the 9th century, to Baghdad. They have looked at the historical records and they've found that one of the caliphs, at least, Caliph Amin, who was the head of the classical Islamic world, had a male lover and celebrated gay poets. Abu Nawas, in particular, was a sort of hedonistic poet who was kind of writing this genre called Mujun, which is a sort of debauchery, sort of smut. And this was being celebrated in the caliph's court. And then there are some more recent examples. You can look at the Ottoman Turks, who ruled most of the Middle East in the 19th century. And they decriminalized homosexuality a century before America and Britain. So the argument that these activists are making is that sexuality was much more fluid. There were men without beards and women with mustaches who were just paragons of desire. And so how are these activists then trying to revive that history that they found? If you look at the Quran, there's actually much less condemnation of homosexuality than there is in Judeo-Christian tradition. So activists across the Arab world are really finding a rich body of more liberal interpretations of religious texts and traditions. There have been a number of key books that have been written over the past sort of 15 years or so by academics from the Middle East who found the space and the safety to write in Western universities. But these works have filtered back to the Middle East. And there's been a sort of rediscovery of classical and Ottoman poetry which is rife with male lovers and in some cases lesbian lovers. And at the same time, you've had a, a sexologist from the 13th century, Ahmed Tifashi. There's been a revival of some of his works and perhaps his best-known work is called Promenade of the Heart. 
And among its claims is that the penis is better shaped for anal than for vaginal penetration. And then you're kind of seeing a sort of manifestation in some of the clubs and dance halls, particularly in North Africa, but also in Beirut. There's been a revival of male belly dancing, which was once common in several Arab capitals. It's still kind of semi-underground. But as you say, it's still somewhat underground. I wonder how much these efforts to revive the history can really change the society as it is today, or indeed even the laws. I think there's a real conscious effort to try and put distance between a discourse in the West and LGBT activism in the Middle East. It's just been too easy for many governments and Islamist groups to portray homosexuals as importing a lifestyle from the West. And I think what activists are saying is actually there are deep roots for such a lifestyle in the Middle East. Yeah, it's going to take time for that to penetrate the culture at large. But that awareness is kind of growing, but it's coming up against Middle East regimes that still want to control the lives of their population and are looking for any way to do that. And control of people's sexuality is one way in which they can do that. And it's very interesting that if you look at Islamist groups who tend to look back at Ottoman times as their model for how they would like to lead an Islamic revival, perhaps there is an attempt to look at that revival in more inclusive terms. You know, the Ottoman Empire was multi-religious, it was multi-ethnic, and it also seems to have been very fluid sexually. And it might be that there is going to be a greater understanding of a more inclusive, more tolerant Middle East through a recourse to the traditions of the Middle East and not just a kind of sense in which this is a an outside, external, almost alien way of life. Nicholas, thank you very much for joining us. Jason, always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. Seven in ten full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company.